This is Brian Paris with Sounds of Berkeley. Today I'm talking with the poet Beth Wood Complatow, who recently released the book Little Myths, her first full-length collection of poems. An associate professor of liberal arts at Berkeley, Beth teaches courses ranging from literature and creative writing to core writing classes. Her poetry has appeared in countless journals, including Agni, Harvard Review, Plowshares, and Gulf Coast. She's also received awards such as the Grolier Prize, the Penn New England Discovery Award, the Beyond Baroque Poetry Prize, and the Rousseau Poetry Prize. Well, Beth, welcome to Sounds of Berkeley. Thank you, Brian. Um, well, to get started, I'd love to hear a poem. I think starting with work makes the most sense, yeah. and, and we, can, we can go from there. So you'll be reading from your new book, Little Myths. Yes, thank you. I'll be reading a poem that's um, about halfway through. There are two sections to the book. It is. It's the last poem of the first section, um, and it's called The Door. When you come to a door, do not think you need to open it. When the door is a man, close it. When the door is a man, rub your body against it. When the door is a woman, smooth your hair. When the door is a woman kneading dough, ask if you can help. When the door revolves, do not get your hand caught. Remember some people lose a hand for simply touching in certain parts of the world. But in your world, where your door swings its mouth open and closed, don't be the servant between kitchen and dining. When the door is rich and sunned and toned, don't avert your eyes. Remember where you come from is a beautiful fact. When it's a fire door, trust there's an alarm because there will be a fire. If the door is hot to the pads of your fingers, try the escape. Let the windows be the door. But when you are the door, like an army of doors, like dominoes lined up, waiting to be set into motion, forget what I first told you. Sometimes you need to open it. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Sure. So the first time that I read through that, I read it for some reason as the last, the ending being the part about the fire alarm and yeah. the last word being fire. And that's really alarming. Uh. I mean, you know, obviously <laughs> uh, the word is there, but it was such a different note. And then discovering that it carries on to the next page. Yeah. Um, and I mean, what a turnaround that happens there that, you know, forget what I just told you. Right. Um, really does a lot of that. And I think that speaks to... When people wonder, like, well, how do you end a poem? How, when do you know it's the end? Because it's like you could read that as the end, and you're, it's kind of abrupt. But then when you actually get the ending, that feels much more conclusive, even though mm-hmm. poetry doesn't act the same way as a story. It doesn't feel like the end of a story in that same, same sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, how did you know when that poem was done? Well, I think that I knew... This was in a series of poems that were sort of written to myself or a younger version of myself, um, but also written to my daughter. They were a series of poems that came when she was younger, a baby or a toddler. And I just had this feeling of wanting to give any wisdom that I had to her. It was sort of a time of processing what I had learned in my life. And 
I think that I wanted to show that there's an optimism or hope still in the world in these poems that I wrote for her or about her or to her. Um, and it's true. There will be a fire. There there almost always will be. There's always going to be something difficult. Um, but there are different ways to deal with the fire. And thinking of a child and addressing this to a child where there's innocence, I just felt like so much is possible for her. And it's almost this adventure of like, even though someone said, don't open the door, like sometimes you have to open it in order to move forward in your life or just for adventure um, or for safety. Um, so I just knew that I couldn't end on because there will be a fire that was so dark and so heavy, even though it's true that it doesn't have to be the ending. Right. Right. And in a way that like, you know, just for the reading experience for me and kind of this unique misreading at first, it was like another door opened, you know, because mm. you can end there and like fire seems like it has a last word, mm -hmm. but then it sort of unfurls itself and opens into this yeah. new direction. And then there is that light, that kind of optimism that you're talking yeah. about, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I, I was in a fire. Um, so this was also mm. came from that. Um and, it, you know, fires are terrible and they destroy things. But like in nature, they also create new life. You know, if you you have to have a fire in order to bring about new trees and new mm -hmm. life. And um, so for me, the fire was awful because I lost everything and I thought I was going to die. But I didn't die. So there was that sense of wow, I, I'm still here in a new understanding of life. I guess, you know, the, a new lease on life. And also I got to see humanity at its best. And I think that's what you see after a disaster is that there's there's so much goodness and there's so much hope. People that I knew when I was a child or strangers were so generous Um after I lost so much and people are good. That's what I wanted to focus on, that mostly I think people are good. Yeah, and there's something about the declarative tone of the poem that almost feels like a how-to or an instructions kind of thing, which I know you know is, is something that, that poems lean on a lot and, and mm -hmm. have for a long time. And I think that what's so interesting about it is it can, it can approach the darkness and it can approach complexity and, and things that really shouldn't have simple instructions to, but using that format, it kind mm -hmm. of like breathes new life into that. So you mentioned you did a series of poems like that. Is this a form that, that you, mm. that you return to? Is it kind of like, was it a phase or, or like a, a kind of a vocal shift for a while or, or do you still use this sort of declarative instructional tone? Yeah, I think the poem before it, The Barn, is somewhat similar to that. Um, some of the poems that I like have that instructional quality to them. Yeah, I think the second person is unique in mm -hmm. literature. And so I think maybe it attracts people. Yeah. Like we want to be brought into that. We kind of want, you know, we want the advice for the harder things. Right. You know, even if it does kind of wander and, and the poem itself kind of moves, it starts kind of in a basic structure, but soon, soon we're, we're like exploring other parts of the world too. And that's mm -hmm. kind of that 
it's a very like specific and logical structure in a sense, you know, following the conceit of doors, but we are able to travel so far with that, which mm -hmm. I think is really unique. Mm -hmm. um, and also reminds me, you know, because you're a teacher, and so there mm -hmm. is a sense of, of that being shared too. Um, and I want to I want to move into talking a bit about that, and to kind of frame it, there's a there's a quote I want to read from a collection of craft essays on poetry by Jane Hirschfield. Mm. Uh, the book is called Nine Gates: Entering the Mind of Poetry. Yeah, and she has a chapter. Her. Yeah, it's great. Uh, she has a chapter on originality, and I just want to read her quick take on like what originality is or mm. where it comes from, sort of the root of it. And for just, you know, for teaching artists, you know, in, in the classroom, young people that are concerned about originality, I'm sure, I wonder if this could use as kind of a, a jumping off point. So Jane Hirschfield says, the word original comes from the Latin verb oriri, to rise, which refers especially to the rising of the sun and moon, but it reaches English through the noun origo, the rising of a spring from its source in the earth. Each root contributes its flavor. One offers a sense of time that is cyclical, arriving and leaving. The other is timeless. The paradox of originality is that it points both to the newly appearing and to a continuance free of time and says within itself that they're one. And you already kind of mentioned sort of like the play of light and dark mm. in this poem in particular. But I think something that was really comforting to me reading that is that originality is in part something that's every day. The sun and moon mm -hmm. has to come out every day. And so there's a cycle. It's not like we have to rethink the wheel in that sense. But then in this other route that you're calling something up to the surface, uh, mm -hmm. you know, to make something with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder just, you know, do you, do you find that with students? Like how do you approach like helping people find their voice, um, particularly teaching poetry to musicians? I love that. Thinking of originality, of... It's, it might not be, it might never be something totally new. I think a lot of people strive for like, this is, no one's ever done this and I'm a genius. And um, I, I'm comforted by this idea that most things that we've done have been done before, but they're different because we're different human beings. Or if we're doing it again, it's a different time or in a different space and we're different people our cells have changed since the last time we did it and um i somehow as you were reading that um it made me think of that that sort of rising that you come from you know you you stand on the shoulder of of the people the shoulders of the people before you and and you rise up a little um and you add what you have to say to it. It really comes down to helping people find their voice, right? Because that's mm -hmm. that's where the originality comes from is when you mm -hmm. trust your voice mm -hmm. um, and you trust yourself to use the rules that you've been taught and you also trust yourself um, to break them, which actually oddly kind of mm -hmm. connects to your poem originally. Like some, I told you not to go right. through the door, but sometimes right. you need to. Right. Um, so I'd love to hear kind of how that works in the classroom for you when you're teaching yeah. poetry to, you know, primarily musicians. Um, one, in the sense, are they coming in thinking this is just going to make them write better songs? And mm -hmm. do you challenge that at all? But also the mechanism of poetry, which was, you know, originally uh, an oral or, or musical form, like mm -hmm. if that connects with them and, and mm -hmm. you're able to demystify it for them mm -hmm. in some way. Um, well, um, most of the students who take poetry with me, there are other faculty who teach it, so I don't 
teach it regularly, but when I do usually every summer, I have mostly songwriters in there. Um, and so, you know, I ask them why are, why are they taking the class and they think it's going to help their songwriting. And I agree with them. I do think it's going to help their songwriting, um, their lyric writing. Um, I think they're very different. I feel envious of song and lyric writers because they have this combination that they can work with that can elevate lyrics that may not be as strong solely on the page. So I think I'm not a songwriter. I'm not a lyricist, so I don't know how that works. But I do know that in writing a poem, of course, you you work with sound, um, and there is music involved. Um, there's rhythm involved. But you... It feels very distilled to me. There are some tricks that you can play, but you're you're doing it with your. Um, I was going to say you're doing it with your your actual speaking voice, but if it's just being read on the page, you just you have the words, and um, you can guess how it someone might be pronouncing some something, but you don't you don't have a beautiful guitar in the background or drums. Um, or whatever violin or the emotion I find in songs can be stretched. I find that I'll listen to lyrics and I'll be like, I love these lyrics and then I'll actually speak them out and I'll think, wow, that's that's pretty simple or that's pretty plain. I don't know if that would work simply on the page. Even what I have here in the book is different than when I read it, which is different than when I go give a reading and people can see how my body moves and um, how my eyes light up. And if I smile, you can hear that in my voice sometimes. But um, And then you add music and it's a whole new layer that seems really exciting to me. So what I try to stress to students is I think I have a higher standard when it comes to po- to page poetry, as I call it, um, than I might for lyrics. And that's just that's just me. And um, so I always tell them, like, I think it's really exciting for you that you can add music and you can um, manipulate the words um, by outside sources. We talked in a, a meeting recently, a division meeting about the sage on the stage kind of teaching kind of pedagogy or the guide on the side. And I'm definitely the guide on the side, which I happily learned that that works well with this new generation of students. Um, And it works well within my discipline. Yeah. And the idea also, I love that guide on the side idea, because it's not saying here's the right way to do it. It's just saying here's another focus. You know, it's not that like lyrics have to stand up on the page, you know, because part of the power is the way that the music is moving through that and under it. But mm-hmm. there's another way. You could approach your lyrics in a way that they could stand up on either end, and then that might drive the music in a different direction. And so in mm-hmm. some ways, it's like another strategy, mm-hmm. you know, rather than one or the other. Because it's like on, on poetry, you don't have that minor chord to go to at the right moment to kind mm-hmm. of elevate the emotion in, in that right. second. So like 
in in some ways, this can kind of teach you to develop a muscle that mm-hmm. will allow you to enhance that and mm-hmm. um, and and hopefully deepen it. Mm-hmm. I always feel like there's this there's baggage along with that that it has to be Shakespeare sounding, mm-hmm. antiquated. Mm-hmm. It has to you know be language that sounds smart. There has to be a secret meaning that it's or right. meaning that it's that's more of a riddle mm-hmm. um, than anything. And I wonder if you if you face that at all. If you ever notice you know students that they might have a really spot on voice in their songs. And then when you have them write a poem, it's like it all disappears, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's kind of like, where'd your voice go? And right. you know, I, I wonder if you've ever encountered that. I have all those same feelings that I did when I was a kid of like, I don't get it. What's wrong with me? I'm, you know, why, why don't I get it? I'm not smart enough or that thing is stupid because I don't get it or... um. You know, I just what? Well, okay, let's start talking about what what it is. Um, and it really, it's amazing to see how they're like they shift in their chair and they they wake up. Um, it's really lovely to see. And I'll tell students like you don't have to love the whole thing. You don't have to understand the whole thing to take a little away. Always tell them with anything you're looking at, just try to find one thing. That stays with you. Doesn't even have to be something you like per se, but just that stays with you. So I, I do try to get them to to take things away from looking at art. It's not just in a vacuum. It's it's like the liberal arts education can help you in your job. It can help you in your relationship. It can help you sign, you know, a contract or you know buy a house or lots of practical things can come from learning how to analyze things and not immediately jump in and say, I like it, I don't like it. Before we go out, I'd love to hear one more poem, but also where can where can we get a copy of Little Myths? Sure. Well, you can order it on Amazon. Um, you can go to um, National Poetry Review and you can buy it from there. You could order it from a local bookstore. You could ask them to order it. Um the typical ways. So why don't we go out with just one more poem? Mistress. If I come close and lie two shy lips, if I press, mark, an animal you, if I pretend you no daughters and no wife, if I read prayer book, if I church, forgiveness, come home. I'm only good. My body has crime. If I, with wish, take you there, your hands, if I circle you, what will? Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Brian. This episode was engineered by Jimmy Lim in partnership with The Burn. I'm Brian Paris, and this is Sounds of Berkeley. For more podcasts that explore the Berkeley community, check out berkeley.edu slash podcasts.